Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Topher Field, who's been a political commentator for 12 years and a leading advocate for less government and more freedom, speaking out on issues as diverse as freedom of speech, water management, red tape, taxation, climate change, and much more. Topher Field is an Australian documentary filmmaker, libertarian political commentator, and human rights activist. He has been actively commentating on Australian and international politics for more than a decade and has been awarded the Libertarian Activist of the Year Award from the Australian Libertarian Society twice. And he has traveled the world interviewing esteemed scientists, well-known politicians, and powerful cultural influencers. Topher is pro-human and celebrates human achievements, including technology and free trade, which drives the human flourishing seen around the world today. He is also pro-individualism, because the smallest minority of all is the individual, and if individuals don't have rights, no one has rights. In January of this year, Topher announced the release of Battleground Melbourne, a documentary that tells the story of what happened to what many call the most draconian lockdown in the West, perhaps only next to China's measures. I welcome Topher Field to Savage Minds. I wanted to welcome you to the show and tell you that I just loved your film. Oh, thank you. In fact, watching it, it made me angry all over because this topic is one of the few topics that makes me head towards saying really bad words. <laughs> uh, because since this whole nightmare began, I have faced the gamut of all the emotions that you describe yourself having gone through, as do many other people who are in our shoes, who, when I say in our shoes, I, I put it up yesterday on Twitter, something like this, when there's more scientific data now coming out, I've had two of the three creators of the Great Barrington Declaration on the show early on. Mm. And one of them, Jay Bhattacharya, I follow him on Twitter as well, and he tweeted out another report. And every time I read the reports, which we knew back in the summer of 2020 were going to come out, and we knew that the science, that they kept saying, follow the science, we knew this was being PR'd to death, that we were being given a corner of whatever the quote science they wanted to show us. And that usually came right. at the end of these neoliberal TV news shows that were setting out to scare the bejesus out of everyone. Everyone was just being scared <laughs> to death and it worked. So yesterday on Twitter, I said, well, this is where we are fellow frogs because we were all put in a pot of water and slowly boiled. Yeah. And like you describe yeah. in the film, I too was like, holy shit, this must be serious. I was in the army. I was trained in what is called or what was called back in the day. It was this series of decontamination exercises that we had to go through to decontaminate our bodies while wearing MOP4 anti-nuclear vestiture from the face mask to yeah. these very, very thick pieces of clothing. And we had to wipe down our faces and bodies. And like, I was all like trained in this. Then I, <laughs> I thought, okay, I sort of did that doing the shopping. I kid you not, Topher. I was just like very careful about wiping even our own front door knob, going in and out and wash, you know, I followed it. But I tell you, just like you had happened to you, as I saw in the film, after the weeks wore on, you're like, 
wait, they said this was only going to be a bit of time. Wait, this virus in, infects and, and kills a very specific and known demographic. It's just like, we don't know why. It wasn't like the AIDS pandemic in the first months that they didn't know much. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they knew there were yeah. gay men, but still they didn't really have anything. This we knew. We knew and we had evidence. So then- We had good data. We had good data by the end of March. Exactly. Now your film, the reason why I say it got me angry is because this pot of boiling water where we were all frogs together and, and then those of us who woke up realizing we were being scalded and there's others who just happily got boiled to death, I guess, because your film deals with one of the sites of lockdown that together with where I am, because Italy was ground zero. Italy was that, yes, it was. that space I'd like to call whoever in earth ever thought it was a great idea to say, let's follow what China's doing, <laughs> said no politician <laughs> ever, but whatever. Okay, so uh. between Italy, New Zealand and Australia, we are in the armpit of hell of COVID restrictions. And yeah. in your film, your press release states, over the last 22 months, the world has seen violent confrontations and government oppression in Melbourne, Australia, unlike anything seen before. Battleground Melbourne tells the story of human rights activists, protest organizers, business owners, workers, and ordinary everyday people who have taken extraordinary risks in the fight for freedom, end quote. And although your film examines the situation in Melbourne, which was by far the worst in all of Australia, it is impossible not to see your film and to see resonances of what happened in other countries from Italy to Canada to mm -hmm. places in the US because there it was from state to state. So places like California and Singapore. Your film goes through the entire lockdown story what happened there? And, you know, it goes back to that moment when we all thought in February or March in 2020, holy shit, this must be serious, to us waking up and saying, oh my God, we've been lied to. And it's a very serious moment when I was sitting and reading and thinking that. And when mm. you and all the other millions of people who thought this, can you talk about this because your film gets it so much and puts into words things that and i'm a writer but you put into words things that i could not evoke because my emotion and anger sometimes keeps me from being able to speak about this right so let's start at the crazy part the so-called science yeah this is i think one of the most shameful episodes in, in so-called science in, in human history and really the damage done here the damage done to people's goodwill to people's confidence to people's willingness to to actually receive expert advice i mean we, we genuinely rely on experts in all sorts of different areas you know I, I don't want to drive over a bridge that wasn't built by an expert i i don't want to have surgery done that isn't being done by an expert um you know we, we should be able to trust the experts we should be able to trust the science and that's why i think it is such a crime when that phrase trust the science is abused because they're not just abusing us on this issue they're breaking one of the one of the most important bonds of trust that we have in in an advanced society where we do have experts uh, that, that we ought to be able to trust 
So for me, this is absolutely one of the most shameful aspects of this whole thing. I'll give you a few, I'll give you a few examples of, of what's happening at the moment. And, and obviously, you know, for those who are listening that haven't seen Battleground Melbourne, you, you haven't necessarily got the full picture on what went down in Melbourne. But it's, it's like you say, it really does just mirror so much of what's happened around the world. But just today on my blog, I put up a post where I used the last eight weeks of data that's been published by the New South Wales government. So the state of New South Wales is the highest population state in Australia. And according to the official data released by the government, there have been 798 deaths from COVID in the last eight weeks, of which two, that's not a, that's not a mispronunciation, two, not one, but two were unjabbed and 796 were either double or triple jabbed. And that same Department of Health, in amongst those eight weeks worth of reports which contain that data, we're continuing to put up propaganda saying, two jabs is not enough, get your booster, keep your child safe by, get, by getting them jabbed, etc." whilst releasing the data that proved the complete ineffectiveness of those very same jabs. This is not the behavior of an expert. This is not the behavior of someone who is taking their own job seriously. This is the behavior of a propaganda department. And that's what we've been subjected to is propaganda uh, with, the, with the expert label attached to it. It's nothing more than propaganda. We, we really have, and th this is a phrase that is sadly overused in history, so it doesn't carry the weight that it should carry. But I believe it is absolutely true to say that Western media is now no better than the media within the Iron Curtain during the period of the USSR. We have our own version of Pravda. We have our own version of all of those publications. Media now are so in the pocket of government simply because they, the government is their biggest advertising spender. Governments in Australia are the biggest clients and sources of revenue that every newspaper and every television station has. So when they're sitting there with competing expert opinions, there's the government-sanctioned expert on one side, and then there is someone like a, a Jay Bhattacharya or a, a Professor Johnny Anides or these genuine experts who are coming out from very early on and saying, hey, guys, let's be careful here. This, I disagree with the conclusion that's been reached by my colleagues, you know, using all the, all the expert sort of language and, and, and urging a bit more caution. When a media outlet has to choose between which experts they're going to publicize and which experts they're going to suppress in the case of social media, they're always going to choose the one that's best for their wallet. And we have a situation now where the media has effectively been purchased by governments in the Western world simply because if they lose those government advertising contracts, they will cease to exist. The entire masthead or television station will simply go out of business. So here we have a situation where the government has betrayed our trust in science has betrayed our trust in experts. And the media went along with that because they financially couldn't afford to risk upsetting that government. And fast forward two and a half years, the truth is finally starting to get out there. The, the data is starting to become unequivocal. And what concerns me very deeply is that there, there, I believe there will come a tipping point, a moment in time where the number of people getting jarred awake so quickly is going to give rise to a real wave of anger. Um, people talk about the, the COVID madness, and, and I'm really quite concerned that when it comes to people being mad, we haven't even seen the start of it yet. The COVID madness that we've seen previously was, was madness in a sense of insanity. 
the COVID madness that we're going to see in the next two years is madness in the sense of anger, white hot anger on the part of so many people who didn't wake up early. They went along with it. They got the two jabs. Maybe they got the third. Maybe they got their fourth. They put their trust in the so-called science and did what they were told and rolled up their sleeve and got on with it. And then they find out that actually not only did it not work, but that their health has actually been harmed. And I think there's going to come a critical mass of people who, when they become aware of that, that's when the real madness is going to, going to begin. I've been looking into the excess deaths that have been reported Mm -hmm. over the past several weeks in the UK. And Mm -hmm. that is very worrying because Mm -hmm. while it's still an interrogation mark, there is room to cast healthy skepticism about what might be causing this, meaning, as Jimmy Dore says, that "Mm," because he can't say the vaccine. That's right. That's right. What we need to start talking about, given also the data you just gave about the 798 vaccines. 798 in total. That bears criticism. And it bears criticism as to why in Italy, I have been... I've been sent a letter by the government saying, if I don't get the jab, I'm going to get fined. Well, that's right. Wait, yeah. you're trying to find me for an out of date, quote unquote, vaccine, because I, I think we need to also demystify that word. In yeah, yeah. no planet is this a vaccine. If this no. were a vaccine for polio, people would say not a vaccine. Like, why are we giving that yeah. word a fudge when it comes to this? Yeah. Because it doesn't do anything to the subject who receives it to actually not have them transmit it. And that is the primary reason for vaccines in terms of public health yeah. policy. It's not about the individual yeah. being you good, you're not going to get sick. No, it's about the individual being part of a larger protective cover. But anyways, we know yeah. that's a lot of BS too. <laughs> so yes. how is it that even here, if I'm supposed to get this vaccine, which I have thought about doing a theater, and I'm thinking about going to quote unquote get it and filming the entire operation, because here, like in most countries, you can't just go and say, well, I've been ordered to get the vaccine, please give it to me, because before they do that, I have to sign off this paper. And this paper, I basically sign away my rights to take that yeah. maker to court. So we have been hijacked from our physical freedoms and our economic Mm -hmm. stability, our ability to survive, but we've also been foisted into this world of having to negate our democratic rights to due process. I I find this surreal. Mm -hmm. So I thought of that, filming the entire thing, and when they say, no, you have to send the paper, I'm like, no, the law says I have to take the vaccine. Nowhere in this law is it written that I have to sign anything. So the government's in a bit of a catch-22 with me. But that's the thing, is that all of this was set up so that big pharma would be protected. And they're making a killing. And even though there are problems with the Moderna vaccine, the data has been carefully kept undercover, even in the U.S., where people have gone to court to try to find the vaccine damage data, the mortality rate data. This has all been very touch-and-go. Yeah. Yeah, this is the most literal killing that any company has ever made. Um, This is the the degree of human rights abuses that are now being normalised and defended by our politicians, by our media, by our so-called elite intellectual class is on a scale never seen before in human history. Now, 
obviously in its nature, I'm not putting it on a par with, you know, with a genocide in, in the literal sense, but on the sheer number of people whose human rights are being denied them, this is the largest, most widespread human rights abuse in the history of, of the human race. And the fact that it is being treated as normal, as business as usual, the fact that they've even gone so far in their gaslighting and their manipulation to say that if you don't do it, then you're the bad guy. You're the one that wants grandma to die. Now, for people like yourself and myself, where we continue on unjabbed, the reality is we are providing a control group that is vitally important in understanding just how damaging these vaccines really are to people's health. Going back to the data that I gave you just a moment ago, the eight weeks of data from the state of New South Wales, where we've seen uh, 798 people die, only two of which were unvaxxed. And, and what we don't know, actually, they may have had one jab. One or both of those individuals may have actually had one because that's what's classified as unvaxxed in Australia. So 796 people had two or three jabs. Two people had zero or one. And now the actual number of unvaccinated people in Australia is around about 5% of the adult population. So by rights, out of, call it 800 uh, people, there should have been about 40 fatalities uh, that were unjacked if it had actually just matched the, the population demographic. Now, we wouldn't know that if everyone had capitulated and, and, and rolled their sleeves up and done what they were told to do. We wouldn't have that information. But we have that information because there were people like you and people like me who said, you know what, I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna wait until we actually have some good data. And then finally we started to get some data and, and you just have to shake your head and say, well, there's no way I'm doing that to myself. And there's certainly no way I'm doing that to the kids. <laughs> right. You know, so without, without people having had the guts to do that, we wouldn't have that control group that is really necessary to helping us understand why are these excess deaths happening? You know, we, we, we're running at a 20% excess death rate in Australia right now. We're running at, I believe it's 16% in the UK. Now, not all of that is necessarily because of the jab, right? There are other things that can cause excess mortality. There's a certain amount of natural fluctuation that does take place to begin with. So some of it may just be the vagaries of, of that. Some of it is probably due to the COVID response in other ways besides the vaccine. So right now in Australia, we've got very high rates of depression. Uh, we've got unusually high rates of substance abuse, alcohol abuse, and so forth. Uh, we've got relatively high rates of, of uh, various cancers and undiagnosed uh, you know, type 2 diabetes, early onset dementia, these sorts of things that would ordinarily have been diagnosed a year or two years ago are now being caught much later. And, and that is contributing without question, that is contributing. So we've got 16% unexplained excess mortality in the UK. We, what you said was exactly right. We need to interrogate the data and try and understand what are the causes of this. But I think there are some very legitimate questions that ought to be being asked and they're not. And we're not even allowed to ask them in many forums. You, know, you mentioned YouTube before. There are many places where we can't even ask these questions out loud without losing our platforms and being shut down. So there's some really concerning human rights violations that have been just completely normalized. There are some really, really compelling reasons in the data right now to be very, very skeptical uh, of, of the safety, let alone the effectiveness. I mean, you know, we were promised safe and effective. How many times did they tell us that these were effective? Well, neither of those claims is proving to be borne out in the data now. The data does not suggest that they're effective. The data does not suggest that they're safe. We don't have conclusive proof that they're dangerous. 
we don't, or certainly not uh, more dangerous than COVID. We have conclusively proved that they're dangerous. There are people that have won um, court cases and been awarded compensation, et cetera, uh, from government um, compensation programs here in Australia and elsewhere. So we know for a fact that there have been serious adverse reactions. We know for a fact that there have been adverse reactions causing death. But the claim is, well, that happens with all vaccines because they call it a vaccine and you're quite right to point out that it's not. Um, you know, that happens with all vaccines, but it's about the greater good. You know, it's saved far more lives than it's cost. Well, we don't know that yet. That's the bit that we don't know because the claims about its effectiveness are falling apart before our eyes. How many lives did they really save? We, we don't know yet, but the more time passes, the lower that number is starting to look because the effectiveness argument is falling to pieces. The safety argument is also working against them because as time passes, they're starting to look more and more dangerous. So the cost to benefit analysis, the, the claims that were made are not being supported in the data. I completely agree. In fact, even if none of the excess deaths are related to the vaccine, it is most certain that many of them are related to the foregoing, and I, let me just state the forced foregoing of people not being mm. able to access medical care. 100%. I had a CAT scan that was scheduled during what was our lockdown, and that had to be put ahead by six months. Many people mm. had regular tests, just controls. Think of all the women who needed pap smears. Correct. Cervical cancer Correct. is treatable. If you get yeah. tested, think of all of yeah. those hundreds of thousands and across the world, millions of women and men who didn't get regular screenings, mm -hmm. who will probably be part of that 16% increase. Yeah, 100%. I think we need to not only be angry about that, but this falls under a failure to serve the public good. This, this is a huge failure in public health. In fact, yeah. public health needs to be rethought from the ground up. And when I say, public health, I mean all of it. Who died and mm -hmm. left Dr. Fauci God? How did Dr. Fauci yeah. become this voice that was televised in Italy? Like no one gave a crap about mm -hmm. Dr. Fauci, but in the mm -hmm. end, he became this beacon. And, and another thing, Topher, I'm gonna say, and this is a philosophical question, but I think it needs to be asked. In the 1970s, there were programs on TV in much of the Western world where philosophers were highlighted you have the famous Chomsky-Foucault debate in the 60s. Well, mm -hmm. I'm here to ask why on earth was the CBC in Canada, which in the spring, by the way, said that Sweden got it right. It mm. echoed a study. Where was the CBC or NPR and all these public media stations around our countries putting up philosophers who could simply talk about mortality? death and the need to accept that old people die. Let's start there. And then let's also discuss the fact that so much of what happened, and I'm in complete agreement that this was a big media, a big tech and major media propaganda machine in bed yeah. with the government. Yeah. Uh, we are definitely in the world of Pravda. We are definitely in the world of the Politburo. And mm -hmm. where that Politburo is, we still don't quite know. Is it Fauci? <laughs> is it Moderna? Yeah. We were given fear-mongering. So if you were a person that feared for your grandmother, if you feared for your cousin who was over a certain age, who had a certain medical condition, you were right. Now, this is astonishing to me that the people who would cower to these propaganda techniques 
were the ones who were put in the spotlight of media. Those were the speaking voices, you know, the talking heads we got on the TV, on the radio that were asked about lockdown. And they were like, well, it's necessary. I mean, it sucks for all of us. No, it doesn't suck for all of us. Because what the media didn't do, Tover, is talk about the people who were getting paychecks put into their bank accounts because they were salaried workers. They weren't freelancers. Look, there's, there's, we've covered a bit of ground there. I want to come right back to the, one of the first things you said there, and, and that is the failure of duty of care. So anyone in any position of authority has a duty of care where they actually have to make good choices and operate in a way that looks after the best interests of the people that have been placed under their command or under their care. Now, that's true, whether it's in medicine, whether it's as a school teacher, whether it's in the, even in the military. Even when you're being given orders where there is a risk of death because you're on the battlefield, your commanding officer still has a duty of care. And if they are negligent, they can still be held accountable, even in the context of a battlefield. Now, every single politician, every single bureaucrat, and especially every single health bureaucrat carries a duty of care. And every single one of them has failed to operate uh, with, with due care in how they've exercised their powers and and, and, uh, their their responsibilities. So I honestly, I hope to see before I die, and obviously I hope that's still a bit of a way away, um, this this is gonna take decades, but I hope to see before I die, some of those people in at least some countries around the world in prison, having been convicted of a dereliction of duty, of a complete failure in their duty of care and, and with fatal consequences. So that's, I mean, I, I, I make no apologies for that. I'm a hardliner on that. These people need to be held to account at a personal level and we, we need to see prison time. It just is not good enough. However, you may, we, you talked a little bit about philosophy there and I wanna, I wanna get a little bit philosophical and, and slightly controversial with you and suggest that what we've actually seen is the rise of a new religion in which government has taken the place of God COVID is now the original sin. Your health officials, your, your uh, Fauci's, et cetera, are your high priests. The science has become scripture. And the vaccines are the means of salvation. And people like you and I, I hate to break it to you, but in this new religion, we're heretics. We're sinners. And we're refusing the salvation that has been offered by the high priest. And I put it to you that, that actually, as we go, as, as history looks back on us now, they're going to see this as a, a, an absolutely insane chapter in human history, where in, in a very real sense, a so-called secular countries have gone back to some of the darkest chapters of the Catholic Church or other religions around the world in some of their darkest moments. And, and we've actually mimicked that now in our so-called enlightened, you know, science-driven uh, world. I can't agree more. And I'll tell you something, Topher. I work on another subject quite frequently that mirrors this. Mm. Here's the subject. Are you ready? Lesbians don't have penises. Now, I've been following the transgender (laughs) debate with the feminists for some time. And no, I know it's crazy, but I'm sure you followed the stuff with J.K. Rowling. And the reality is that for the past 10 years, there's been a very fierce war on social media, but in the real world too, especially in the UK, 
to upend women's rights. And this mm-hmm. has happened at the end of a very small, powerful and well-funded lobby being able to slip in the back door of government offices and create policy and laws that guarantee the fact that, and this just happened to Posey Parker yesterday, if you say something that the police are told is unkind, you can get a knock at your door being told, why did you criticize pedophiles? And and this has been going on all on the end of appending women's rights, where if I Mm -hmm. say that sex is immutable, that men are not women, that humans are sexually dimorphic, and we are not Nemo, Mm -hmm. we are not clownfish, that this (laughs) can be a chargeable offense. Mm -hmm. And on Savage Minds, in fact, we've run stories by people like Harry Miller, who has been quite successful with Fair Cop, to take the police, the boards that govern how the police operate in the UK, to take them to task for what are called hate incidents and these are slips of talking about pravda this exactly mirrors what happened in the eastern countries during the height of the cold war where the police will come and say oh you called a trans woman a he on twitter scratching it down on paper and this has all been recorded well this has been found to be completely wrong by law but this is still going on and still fair cop is fighting to have these hate crime incidents removed now this is the thing And this is what I've told people during the initial part of lockdown. Well, I think people have been already primed for this because if you can convince a population that humans can change sex, that men wearing a frock and fishnet stocking are actually women because they say so, then you've created a climate for anti-science all over the place. What's really interesting to me with all of this is when you look at some of the heroes of early feminism, including lesbians, uh, Martina Navratilova, being one example, uh, a non-lesbian example, um, Helen Caldicott, uh, there's so many others who were voice celebrated within feminism and within uh, you know, the, the world of lesbian uh, relationships. And now they are being absolutely um, unpersoned and deplatformed because they didn't keep up with the latest fashion. Uh, and, and, and stay ahead of all of the, the new sort of transgender sort of stuff. And it's just fascinating to me to see the very same people who 20 years ago held up Martina Navratilova as one of the great heroes of, of the sports world and, and the cultural world as well. Now, absolutely bad her. And here's the funny thing. Martina Navratilova isn't the one who changed. Her crime is that she refused to change and she continues to stand on the ground that she stood all those decades. It, it is just fascinating sociologically, just watching, you know, the, you know, the expression, the revolution always eats its own children. Uh, and, and I can't have that come to mind as I watch all of this happening, that so many of the, the, the fathers and mothers, the patriarchs and matriarchs of uh, the sexual revolution and, and so much of the, the change that happened around that time are now being eaten by by their own continuing revolution because they've reached the limit of how far they're willing to go. They've reached a point where they go, you know what, beyond this point, it's just starting to get a little bit nuts. And simply for that crime, they're now being disowned and destroyed in some cases by the children of their own. I just, it's just a fascinating thing to watch unfold.
Similar to what you said about major media being in bed economically with the government, the same thing has happened with the lesbian and gay organizations that emerged, most of which emerged during the height of the AIDS crisis, yeah. as a means to respond to government inaction. This is mm. what happened in the US and the UK. Well, the irony is this. They added the T sometime in the late 90s to this narrative. And sure. a lot of us were like, what the hell? These people yeah. who identify as transgender have zero to do with us. And I was yeah. one of them saying this back in the day because I was just like, I was in <laughs> a, a lesbian bar in the West Village and I'm thinking, that has nothing to do with us. Well, you yeah. know, they're discriminated against. And I said, blue collar workers are discriminated against. Why are we attaching that to us? Yeah. Anyways, skip yeah. two years later when I started to be woken up about what was going on in the UK. I was living in London. I was heavily pregnant mm. and this lesbian was telling me about this lobby and I was shaking my head thinking she's nuts. Like I kept thinking this mm. woman is just exaggerating. Then I started to do the research and I realized very, very yeah. quickly that it was accurate what she was telling me. And this is a thing where you say that the duty of care was completely abandoned, that the government mm. has become God and that the COVID vaccine has become the host, yeah. that I've mm. seen this exact same thing within gender ideology, that those people who do not say that men okay. are women, those people who do not say that pronouns, the correct pronouns, I mean, in what planet are we? We've never had preferred pronouns, but whatever. You must mirror me as I see myself, Topher. So I mm. am the best, I'm the best quiche maker. And you must say, Julian, the best quiche maker on the planet. Like no, we're in this really right. wacky world of where all of our identities have to be affirmed because at the end of this tunnel of hell is science has been placed on the back burner. Actual science has been placed mm. way on the back burner because what we know from the trans debate is that none of this transgender medicine is science-based, none of it. I recently spoke to As Hakim, a psychiatrist in London who has worked within the, the quote unquote transgender community for years. And you start to trace back the origins of this quote unquote medicine. And it's coming from the height of the Cold War, 1950s, the height of sexism, when men could not be found to be wearing anything but dungarees. So yeah. all of this seems to have echoes in other narratives. The fact is that you said in your film, and this really got to me, I loved it. You said high vaccination rates were necessary to change the political narrative. And I put the film mm -hmm. back and I watched it again. And I thought, wow, he's just said something that I could not put into words. You're very good about tracing the ideology behind all of what we've been through. Can you explain to our yeah. listeners what you meant by this? Because some people are going to be like, what, do you, what does he mean by that? Because you don't base the science and the political narrative together, but that's exactly what happened. The political narrative I was always being sculpted for us. Yeah, and this is something that I don't think people who, you know, I've been a political commentator now for 12 years, so this is second nature to me, and I, it's very easy for me to spot when this happens, but the media and politics would have you believe that this never happens, and what I'm talking about is the politicization of supposedly apolitical bodies. So take, for example, your chief health officer. People assume that they are apolitical. They assume that they are unaffected by the whims of whoever the ruling party is, and they're just going to do good evidence-based medical advice. But the question you have to ask yourself is who gave them their job? Who decided that they were going to be the chief health officer and not 
somebody else? And the answer is a politician decided that. So if that's the case, instantly they are not independent of politics. If they start to do or say things that are politically inconvenient to the politician that gave them their job, they're going to lose their job. Now, in Australia, by the way, or in Victoria, the same is actually true of our police chief commissioner. Our chief commissioner of police is not chosen by a public vote and is not chosen from within the ranks of the police force itself. They are actually handpicked by the government of the day. So here we have a police force whose chief is politicized. With Dan Andrews was elected, um, and but then he handpicks all of his so-called advisors. So the chief health officer, the chief of police, etc., are all handpicked. Therefore, by definition, every single one of them is politicized. They, there are limits on how far they can go against the wishes of that politician in the form of Daniel Andrews before they lose their job. And so it's in that context that you have to understand Daniel Andrews has gone harder than anyone else in lockdowns. He locked down Melbourne, turned us from the most livable city in the world into the most locked down city in the world. And he was aiming for COVID zero. Now, this was his mantra, COVID zero, not Let's slow it down so that the hospitals aren't overwhelmed. No, no, no. We're going to get to the point where we have no COVID at all. And the question, of course, that I was asking right from the beginning is, okay, and then what, right? You can't, we can't be the hermit kingdom forever. Sooner or later, we have to open up. What's, what good is COVID zero if, if it's just going to be a temporary thing? Uh, that, of course, was that question was never answered. But he went so hard. And then when COVID zero became untenable, he couldn't keep it up because of course you can't. It was never, it was never a long-term solution in the first place. He then had to find a way out. He had to change the political narrative in a way that wasn't going to hurt him too much politically. It wasn't going to cost him the election that's coming up in November. So he went looking for, well, how do you change the narrative from COVID zero? We're not going to have any COVID at all in the country to actually saying, well, now we've got COVID and people are getting sick and people are dying, but that's, that's just how it's got to be. And the way that he could craft that narrative was through high vaccination rates. That was his ticket to be able to walk away from COVID zero and say, okay, everybody, we're now up to however many percent vaccinated, 80%, 90%, 95%, whatever, the number changed on different days of the week. Um, but, it, but that's what made it politically achievable for him to change that narrative to get away from COVID zero, because that was going to kill him politically sooner or later. So he had to get away from it, but he had to get away from it in a way that didn't itself kill him politically. So that was the ticket, was high vaccination rates became the excuse, the way that he could explain the shift in policy. Uh, and really all of that from COVID zero all the way through to the high vaccination rates, all of it was about politics and nothing else. And one thing that came out of this narrative and what you've just said has been an astounding lack of awareness amongst many of the fellow boiling frogs. At what point will people wake up? I mean, it could be watching mm. your film because I know I'm already on board with all of what your film said, but it got me really angry all over again because I suffered, my children suffered, my wife suffered. It was the worst yeah. thing to have moved into a tiny shoebox apartment thinking, oh, we have time to find something bigger. Oh. And then boom, a yeah. month later, you're locked up. You can't look for work. You can't move. We had to have forms to leave our house. I had to live in fear of the police as an immigrant in a country where the police are known to be not that honest. And I yeah. was very worried about 
every aspect of where we would move. Because physically, when you left your house, the irony is in parts of Italy, people were allowed to go outside only if they had a dog. I mean, in what mm -hmm. world do dogs have more rights than humans? But there we are. And so you can take your dog for a walk, but not yourself, right? And um, I mean, I wish I had had one of those leashes that has the invisible dog and I could be like, I identify <laughs> this as a dog, but you know, <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> I should have, but you know, I get, I, I would have had to go to a shop to get that and couldn't you do that. Now it. could mm -hmm. we, it wasn't an essential item. And even as a writer, I pitched to left-wing publications about the need to cover the mental health fallout from this. No, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we can't run a story like that. That would look like we're against That's lockdown. Right. This is what I was told over and over. This, the, the intellectual bankruptcy here is, is another angle that I think is, is going to get a lot of attention in the future, but hasn't been fully appreciated yet. Here we have people who would willingly go and protest and get arrested if necessary to protect you know, baby seals, to protect uh, old growth forests, to protect you know um, the, the rights of immigrants uh, etc but they didn't raise a peep about the human rights violations that were being done to them and their next door neighbor uh, it, it, it is astonishing to me the the moral blindness that comes with that I mean I'm, I'm what's known in Australia as a libertarian so I fundamentally I believe in freedom for all not just the people that I agree with but for everybody that we all have human rights, that we all should be allowed to live as long as we're not hurting other people. We should be allowed to live in whatever, whatever way seems best to us. Even if I look at you and go, you know what, I think that's a really bad idea. I can say, hey, I think that's a really bad idea, but I'm not actually able to stop you unless you're hurting somebody, right? Mm -hmm. I don't have the right to call the cops on you unless you're hurting somebody. I, I simply look at it and go, well, I believe in, in, in the same rights for all of us, equal universal human rights that's it very simple but it's very interesting to me that what we've what's been revealed thanks to COVID, is that there's a lot of people that believe in very selective human rights they believe in a few of them or for they believe in them for certain demographics but they don't believe in them for other people um, you know so they for example would happily go and get arrested at a protest standing up for the rights of, of immigrants or indigenous australians or various other things like that in black lives matter type protests they will get out there even during lockdowns we had black lives matter protests happening on the streets of melbourne and people were showing up to those protests even when there was even when the lockdowns were happening but if you showed up to protest against the lockdowns now you're a monster if you protest for the rights of your own family to be allowed to go and play at a playground, because at one point uh, they actually shut down the playgrounds in Victoria. Um, we were allowed out of a house for one hour a day and uh, only for one of four purposes, which did include exercise. You could leave your house to go and exercise. But then they decided they were going to shut down all of the playgrounds and they wrapped them up in, in construction tape. They removed swings. I'm not making this up. They removed swings. They had construction crews come in and put concrete bollards onto skate parks so that people couldn't ride skateboards and scooters. Like, utter madness. And those same people who were showing up during lockdowns to Black Lives Matter protests didn't raise a peep on behalf of their own kids or their neighbor's kids. Really, really selective about which human rights and which humans' rights 
that we're going to stand up for. And I think this is one of the big lessons coming out of this. I think the political left have some very big lessons to learn about, about themselves uh, and, and about whether they actually believe in human rights or not. And I think the political right need to take a really, really hard look at themselves and, and ask themselves whether the government really should have all that much power, given how badly that power has been abused recently. Uh, and and the, the right loves, you know, the, the war on drugs and, you know, the thin blue line and all that sort of stuff. Well, hang on. What happens when that thin blue line is, is sent out to beat your head in because you're protesting against the government? Like, there's some really important lessons that have to get learned on all sides of politics. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. It happened here. The playgrounds were covered in that police crime tape. And it's interesting because that is the crime scene. It's the metaphorical crime scene for what we've all been put through. I can say with certainty, I see this every day developing, that our narrative is correct <laughs> and that people are waking up to this but it's happening in a way like in your film one of the gentlemen interviewed says that they kept shifting the goalposts and the goalposts have rockets i believe he said or rocket launchers <laughs> yeah rocket boosters yes that's it that's it and and that's yeah. exactly what's going on but so many people and this is a human flaw many people are unable to admit when they're wrong. And this is a real problem here. And this is where politics and political narratives like lockdown won initially, because they could grab hold of the people most fearful so that our human rights were put under lock and key because of those who were most vulnerable to propaganda, because the propaganda yeah, operated right. upon fear. So me, someone who personally I'm a pretty fearless person. But those people who were more prone to the propaganda drove the propaganda. So all those morons out there on social media saying, lockdown, or you're trying to kill people, you're a murderer. Well, they, unbeknownst to themselves, gave rise to this totalitarianism. And social media Correct. played a role in this, as we know, because it locked down accounts of anyone who would share something that their censors, mind you, Facebook censor is a branch of NATO. Okay, this is a fact. So of course, you can't criticize. Yes, it is. You cannot actually wow. criticize what Russia has been saying for years, which is basically NATO get out of our backyard. This is a fact. And I'm not pro Russia invading any country. But this is, of course, what the Joe the moron on Facebook yeah. and social media of any sort says, well, you're advocating for the war in Ukraine. No, I'm not. I'm pointing to the fact that for years, for the last decade, Russia has been saying that NATO needs to get out of its backyard and has warned that it's going to invade the Ukraine. It has warned this. So where are we now? So it's become very difficult for political narratives to push back subtly because social media is not a subtle medium. It's a medium of yeah. screaming down and saying granddaddy killer. The sunk cost fallacy is, is really where we're at, where there's an enormous number of people who cannot change their mind now because if they admitted that they were wrong, then they have to admit that all of the cost of the last couple of years was for nothing. 
And you know, it's a little bit like a, a gambler who's playing poker. And I, I happen to be a poker player. And I, I love the game. But it's like somebody who gets so deep into a hand, they've put so much money in that they just have to keep putting more money in, even though they know they're losing. And they end up losing far more than they should have. Uh, but because of that sunk cost, because of what it costs them to stay in the hand up to that point, they just can't let it go. And there's a lot of people that psychologically are, are in a sunk cost fallacy now when it comes to the COVID narrative. They just can't let it go because it means admitting that all of the cost of the last two and a half years was actually wrong. But I'd even go a step further. You'd be familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Uh, it's, a, it's something most of us learn about in either high school or, or perhaps in, in sociology, university, something like that. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll jump people's memories for those that uh, it might have been a very long time since you've seen it. But it's basically a, a triangle, pointy bit at the top, flat on the bottom, and it's sliced into layers uh, vertically. So you've got these horizontal um, sections. And at the lowest section is the most essential items that you need just for bare survival, oxygen, water, shelter, etc. These to the most basic human needs. And at the top of that pyramid, you've got, imagine it's sort of the best life ever, the ultimate human life. I, I, if my memory says me correctly, it was referred to as self-actualization. Basically living your most fulfilling uh, ultimate version of what human existence can look like. And everyone sits somewhere in between those two. If, you're, if, you, if you don't meet the base of the pyramid, the basic needs for survival, then you, you stop living shortly thereafter. Um, very few people have actually achieved self-actualization. So most of us are living somewhere in the middle. We have some level of comfort, some level of, of satisfaction, some level of identity. It's, it varies for each of us. Now, here's what happens when COVID comes along, is you take a whole bunch of mediocre people who are living very mediocre lives somewhere on the, somewhere on that triangle, somewhere on that hierarchy, um, you know, government employees or whoever they may be, just plodding along, paying their bills, working their job, not particularly loving life, not hating life, just kind of there. And what they're given when the media comes along with this narrative of this virus is gonna kill all of the grandmas. And then the government comes along and says, stay home, save lives. What they've suddenly been given is the opportunity to move up that hierarchy and become much more important than they were. Because now they're not just living a mediocre life and helping in the payroll department of some company somewhere. Now they're saving lives, right? And so what we've had is millions of people in Australia, Italy, etc., who bought the narrative, it didn't just, it wasn't just about the virus. For them, these have been the most exciting and fulfilling two years of their life because suddenly they were important. Suddenly they'd been given purpose. They'd been given a reason to get out of bed or even better, a reason to not get out of bed. And, and they could attach it to this really, really important goal of saving lives. And so for them, when it all comes crashing down, and when they have to admit, or, or when you ask them to admit that actually it was wrong in the first place, you're asking them to let go of the best years of their life, the years where they actually had that greatest sense of purpose that they've possibly ever had. And for those people, it's going to be impossible to let go. And there are going to be people who will go to their grave still telling themselves that you know, lockdown saved lives and all of the various lies, you know, the, the vaccines worked, et cetera. It doesn't, there is not, for some people, there is no amount of data that will change their minds because they cannot let go of the best years of their life. Oh, Topher, you've put it so beautifully. And the reality behind this demographic of people who are digging in their heels 
is that they were the pajama class, most of them. I know nobody who was deprived of their economy, who dug down in such a way. And one thing that came out of your film was the person, he's a gentleman who said that people don't understand that when you say economy, you're not talking about this kind of mad capitalism. It's about people's survival. It's about their ability to be on that first rung of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And it's funny you mentioned Maslow because I've thought of this the whole time because the kind of stress that I, I have a PhD, I had just moved to a country, but I was not of a poor class. This lockdown turned me into that class, ironically. I became a freelance journalist a decade ago, but the lockdown hit me in a way that I was not prepared for. And it also caused stress. My poor son, he had serious issues. He was still very small when this happened. And he's now six years old, but that was horrific for him to not be able to just go outside. We couldn't go outside at all for weeks at all. And then when we could, it was under this very grueling dimension of stress and only certain meters and only in certain places, but it wasn't actually opened up for many months. And so people who scream, these pajama class morons, I'm sorry, but I just cannot ever get over them. They were the ones screaming about us being right-wingers, us being only concerned about capitalism. (laughs) Wait a sec. I had to tune in to freaking Tucker Carlson on Fox News to get anything resembling (laughs) left-wing rhetoric. And I kept pinching myself thinking, am I on drugs? Has someone injected me with a drug? Because I'm watching Fox News, the one place that 20 years ago I could not even get near. But Fox News was the only place covering the pandemic somewhat responsibly and i was always wtaf every day of my life i my daughter started a swear jar recently because it's gotten that bad i cannot (laughs) talk about female female penises or lesbians with a penis or lockdown or covid without swearing anymore it's that bad yeah look i swear a lot more than i used to i drink a lot more than i used to um and i care a lot less than i used to about what people think of me uh, this has definitely been a process for me of, of really being hardened up and uh, just, I, I think the silver lining for me personally, out of all of this, is that I have a much greater grasp of who I am and what I'm about and what I'm willing to negotiate and compromise on and what I'm not. And that's been quite liberating for me. And, and in a way, Battleground Melbourne is a bit of a, it's a bit of a, um, a stake in the ground, a bit of a marking of territory. And uh, just saying to the whole world, no, I am one of those people who is going to stand for human rights, even when it's not popular, even when the, the, the popular psyche has been overtaken by this mindless fear, media driven fear, politically driven fear, I'm not going to buy into it. And I'm actually going to push back against it and, and really take a stand. I've got a six year old son and a two year old daughter and a third child on, on the way. And what I realized as, as, as I was making decisions in 2020 was I kind of keep on protesting and risking arrest and risking violence and, and, and injury by, at the hands of the police, et cetera. And I'm, I'm looking at my son and at the time my, my wife was pregnant. We, our daughter hadn't been born yet. And I'm looking at them and I'm just going, I, I couldn't live with myself watching them grow up knowing that I didn't actually speak up and, and say something or do something when it mattered the most. 
And so that's that's been the process for me is, is we've had this pyjama class that you talk about. They've been very vocal, very proud, very willing to stand up and stake their flag in the ground and say who they are and demand respect and demand to be listened to, et cetera. Well, two can play that game. And, and this is me. And, and Battleground Melbourne is me standing up and saying, no, you listen to me. You listen to the people that I stood shoulder to shoulder with and did battle on the streets of Melbourne for the, for the freedoms that you want to take away from my kids and from their future. And uh, I think this is what's become really important. The next kind of phase of this fight is people like you, people like me, actually becoming out and proud, coming out of the closet, if I can, uh, if I can coin a phrase. <clears throat> um, you know, we've actually got to just go, no, no, we're here. And we're proud of who we are. And I am. I'm proud of who I am. I'm proud of what I stood for. I'm proud of the things that I said in speeches at those rallies. I'm proud of the things that I've said online. I'm on criminal charges still uh, awaiting the outcome of, of criminal charges for so-called incitement, encouraging people to exercise their human rights is, is now a crime in this country. And I look at it all as a badge of honour. I look at it all as a badge of honour. And I think that's where we're at. We've now just got to go, no. I'm here, I'm out, I'm proud, I'm going to be loud, I'm going to stake my, my flag in the ground and say this is my territory now. Well, I'm talking to Monica Smith as well, who similarly wonderful was up on criminal charges and is still on certain charges. And it's amazing mm-hmm. to think that Western democracies are going there. This is the kind mm-hmm. of stuff that you you look at, people point to Indonesia and say, look what's happening over there. And the very people pointing out this would have been the pro-lockdown morons. This is Correct. the irony. Is that we can't even see the forest for the trees, you know, as a, as a community in terms of mm. how wrong everything went and i think the scales are falling off many people's eyes but the class issue the socioeconomic factor of of this pajama class has to be critiqued in the sense of i'm not saying that all people who work from the computers were behind this i work from a computer as well i certainly wasn't my sector was definitely affected however but one thing that i saw that really touched me was that scene in your film where the police officer is sympathizing with a protester who points out that at least you know the police officer is getting paid and he's fighting for his job he wants to get paid and you say something that really struck a chord in me you you talk about how this is pitting one kind of individual a working police officer against others, the working class, and it's pitting people against each other while those who are puppeteering this are invisible. Yeah, uh, yeah. what I say there is, is, is that it's just, it's so perfect that here you've got the people fighting against the police, but they're both on the street for the same reason. They're both on the street because they're afraid they won't be able to feed their family, but they're on opposite sides somehow. I mean, the political mastery, um, it, it's so Machiavellian, it's so perfect. Uh, and that's really what's given Daniel Andrews, the, the Premier of Victoria, the incredible political strength that he has, is that he is a master of manipulation. He is an absolute master of dividing people and pitting them against each other and telling them to hate each other. And he's got enough support and enough popularity uh, that, that he has a, a class of people that are willing to echo him. Whatever he says, he immediately gets echoed in the media, on social media, elsewhere. 
Um, and so he, he, he becomes very effective. He just has to demonize one group of people. And then all of a sudden, there's tens of thousands of people around Victoria echoing that demonizing of that group of people. Um, and, and so it, it just becomes so easy for him to really manipulate and, and control people. Now, to a degree, um, he's, he's losing a bit of his grip on power as we speak. He's been wrapped up in, in um, scandals of you know, corruption-related scandals for decades now. And he's earned the nickname Teflon Dan because it just never quite seems to stick. It just, we never quite seem to be able to get him uh, to be held accountable for his crimes. And I use that word intentionally. Um, but it seems as though we're getting a lot closer to making something stick. And um, I, we're so close to the election now, though, I, I actually don't want him to, to step down before the election. I want him to face this next election. Uh, because I want the pleasure of handing in a ballot, uh, a vote against him. And hopefully, I mean, I'm doing everything that I can, trying to get more people to watch Battle Ram Melbourne, share it, remind more people of what happened and the madness of what we endured um, in between now and the election. So I'm hoping that um, we can actually see him voted out. But there are so many people in that pyjama class. There are so many people suffering from Stockholm Syndrome, which honestly, I think we need to rename. Stockholm Syndrome needs to be renamed Melbourne Syndrome. I think we're being very unfair on the people of Stockholm because there's <laughs> a small number of people. There were a small number of people in that bank. Um, you know, this is an entire city. This is four and a half million people of which there's at least a couple of million who have Stockholm Syndrome and absolutely loved their captor while he was controlling and micromanaging their lives. So we've got a lot of work to do to get Daniel Andrews held accountable. Uh, I hope to see him face the election uh, as the leader of, of the Labor Party, and I hope to see him lose. Time will tell, though. Well, what happened in the UK is interesting. The way that they got the Stockholm Syndrome going there was a very clever propaganda machinery clapping for mm. our NHS, our NHS. So it's ours to protect. They made it like as if we were all in this together. It was us protecting this hard-won freedom to have health care. Now, a great idea, except that there was, even on the BBC, I mean, this is a state-supported media, and there was no counterbalance to any of the reporting around yeah. this and so people were clapping you got those ridiculous cnn clips of a woman in spain singing on her balcony a man in in uh, naples yeah. singing on his balcony yeah. it was completely yeah. romanticized as if a frank capra film remember why we fight yeah. now this is it took a, a page from the why we fight videos that promoted world war ii amongst mm. a population that Americans were not pro going to war. This was yeah. not what was happening yeah. early on. And yeah. the propaganda was thick. So mm. how is it that this has somehow been able to be another chapter of history repeating itself? Is it that people yeah. just don't see it? Is it that the fear factor was so great about us being amidst the plague and that people, even when we knew this wasn't the plague, they still committed to it? Just do your part. And I can tell you, I was in feminist groups. And this is where I wrote one day because I was in a feminist group with a lot of other writers. And I said, are other women here getting responses from editors pushing back on stories about mental health repercussions from lockdown? And I was jumped upon by one woman who said, and these are women who fight the fight about men not having 
you know, vaginas and that lesbians are not bepenist. And she jumped on me and said, how dare you deny COVID? I have friends who have suffered from this. And I was thinking, wait, who made that leap? That's a weird leap to make. Yeah, and there's there's a lot of that going on, but a lot of that is learned behaviour. This is what they see in the media. This is how they see politicians speaking about anyone that dares to speak up, and so they they learn that, and that just becomes their their pathway, their their mental pathway. As soon as they hear uh, that trigger, it's it's very Pavlovian. They they hear someone say, "Hey, I'm I'm a bit worried that the consequences of lockdown might be might be pretty bad here," and they and they just jump to, "You want grandma to die." because that's kind of how they've been trained by the media and by politicians. Um, it, it is, it's a, it's a fascinating area of psychology where people really did lose their moral compass. And, and one of the shocking things for me was I, I had a little exchange with someone who I know who's a police officer. And I said to them, I, I was challenging them. I said, you are morally responsible for the decisions that you make. Even when you're following orders, you're still morally responsible. And they said back to me, they said, no, I'm not. If I'm, being, if I'm being given an order, the person giving the order is morally responsible. I just have to follow it. And in that moment, it was, really, it was this really surreal moment for me because I was looking at them and all of a sudden it was as though, and obviously I didn't physically, but in my head, I just saw them standing there in a, in a, a prison guard uniform uh, from Auschwitz. And I just, I just went... You would have stood, I didn't, I didn't say this, but in my head, I'm looking at them and I just, I could feel the blood draining out of my face. You would have stood on the guard towers at Auschwitz. And then you would have, you know, gone to church on Sunday and sung songs and gone home and made love to your, your partner and then gone back to work and stood on the guard towers at Auschwitz. And you, you just can't, you cannot see this. And I've never, I haven't been able to talk to that person in the same way since. It, it, that, in that moment, my, my ability to actually have a level conversation with them was, was kind of ruined forever, realising that they just lacked any moral judgment at all. Um, you know, and, and this is what we have to realise, I think, that there is this assumption and, and popular entertainment movies, etc., kind of feed into this idea that people who do evil things are evil people. And so much of history tells us that that's not actually the case. People who do evil things are people who do what they're told for the most part. Um, and the worst evils in history have actually not been done by people disobeying the law and disobeying the government. It's actually been done by people who were acting in accordance with the law and doing what they were told. Every genocide has been legal. Slavery was legal. The, 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 the hunting and attacking of gay people was legal. It still is legal in some countries to execute gay people. Like this stuff, the law is not the arbiter of what's right and wrong. I, I have a motto that I've, I developed uh, in 2020. As I, as I realized, I was actually walking out my front door to go and break the law. I'm, I was 39 years old. I have never done that in my life. I've been a law-abiding person all my life. And I realized in 2020, I'm now walking out my door and kissing my wife goodbye and hugging my kids for the purpose of going and breaking the law, so-called law. I, I, I don't accept it as law at all, but that's what it was called. And so I developed a slogan, good people break bad laws. Right? Five words, yes. nice and simple. 
good people break bad laws. And it's been amazing to watch the response to that. A lot of people get it. They get it straight away. And they're like, yes, love it. Can I get it on a T-shirt? Can I, you know, I, I want that. Um, but a lot of people push back on me. And they go, oh, well, you can't just have everyone making it up as they go along and deciding which laws they want to obey, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yes, actually, you can. And that's how it has to be. Because the alternative, if good people don't break bad laws, then what you're saying is good people obey bad laws. Mm-hmm. And that's even worse. Yeah. Like the horror that has been done by people who self-perceive as good simply obeying the law. Those are the people that stood on the guard towers at Auschwitz. Those are the people that carried out the, the, the genocides as part of the Mao Zedong's Great Leap Forward. Those are the people that took all the food off the Ukrainians during the Holodomor and caused millions of people to die of starvation. These were people who perceived themselves as good but they were being forced to obey bad laws. Now, I'm a good person. I'm just, I just have to do what I'm told. That is the, the attitude of a coward. That is what the, the Nazis, senior Nazis during the Nuremberg trials tried to say about them. So we were just following orders. It's not good enough. And to have anybody now, whether it's in law enforcement, in government, in healthcare, anywhere, trying to hide behind this idea, you know, with the pajama class, et cetera. Well, it was the law. We just had to do it. It doesn't, you know, don't tell me how much it hurt or how much you suffered or whatever. It was the law. I had to do it. No, not good enough. That is the, the, the shield of a coward. And, and they, they honestly are people who would have committed the worst atrocities in history if they'd been born at a different time in a different country. And I have lost all respect for anyone that tries to take that line. I completely agree with you again. I mean, I driving around and I see people alone in their cars with masks. I am angry (laughs) because they are part of the problem. They are symbolically giving credence to the lie. So, Julian, what you what you need to do, Julian, what you need to do is just go and tap on their window uh, and ask them if they're also wearing a condom, because obviously, um, (laughs) you know, they need to practice safe sex uh, as well as safe uh, breathing. And if you're going to wear a mask when you're alone in the car, then I, you, you better wear a condom as well. It just it only mm-hmm. makes sense. <laughs> well, it, it's true. But, you know, the reality uh, in this country is that people are in denial. Let's say the last mm. few months we've had relative, quote unquote, freedom. I, I put it all in quotes mm. because uh, I live yeah. in fear of when the next shoe's going to drop always. And yeah. so I was at yeah. this thing. It's called a Sagra, this festival. It was a musical festival a few months ago. And I saw people who didn't even know I was in the country. Why didn't you tell me? I said, mm. I moved here a month before lockdown. I have had no mm. desire to talk to anyone because <laughs> I would be very uh, depressing for you to talk to. And so what Mm. happened is I was sitting around seeing people I hadn't seen in years. We were having a beer and they said, well, how are you? And I said, I'm not fine. And I don't know why we're talking about how I am. Why isn't everyone here talking about the fact that we've just been released from domestic prison? I want to know why everyone at this festival is pretending that everything's okay because it's not okay. I practically gave a sermon. I was really upset. Then it came out from the other people that they too were upset. But everyone wants to make this theater of we good, but we're not good. I think that we need to start to talk about this, this violation of 
the Geneva uh -huh. Convention, because if you or I had been through this in Iranian prison, the Geneva Convention would have come out of people's mouths. But no one's advocated for us. No, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I actually, I don't tell people that I'm good. You know, in Australia, I'm sure it's similar in most countries. It's very common. You see somebody, oh, hi, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks you. Yeah, I'm good. And it doesn't actually mean anything. It's just kind of this procedure that we go through. We're not actually engaged with thinking about what our answer should be, whether we're good, whether we're not actually good, whether we're great. Maybe we're having a great and we don't even doesn't even cross our mind. It's just I'm good. That's that's what you say. And I don't anymore because I, I think those sorts of glib interactions um, uh, people can hide behind those. And I know speaking speaking candidly for myself, this the last two years has been harmful to my mental health. Now I'm doing okay, but I'm not the same person that I was two years ago. Now I'll get back there, but I'm not right now. And I, I have heightened levels of anxiety, things that used to be very easy for me. I used to do without thinking. Now, you know, the phone rings and there's the thought of, uh, you're, you know, knock on the door is a classic one. There's the thought, is that the cops again? Right, I've had them at my door, you know, enough times that that's what goes through my head. You, you got to understand, we lived for years, for two years we lived with a rule that when there was a knock on the door, my wife was the one who was going to answer the door. My son was going to go to the back of the house and I was going to pull out my phone and get ready to start live streaming in case it was the cops who were to barge into the house and arrest me. You know, that's that. And, and you know, I say that to some people like, oh, you're just paranoid, hypervigilance, blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. They came and arrested me. Right? It's not paranoia when they really are. <laughs> you know, they're actually going to do it. And they did do it. But that was how I lived for two years. And, and no, I'm not okay. And I'm not going to pretend that I am. This is not okay. Um, you know, having said that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not terrible. I'm doing better than some. There are, there are some people out there that are really, really, really hurting. But we've, we've got to start just being actually honest about to, with ourselves about where we're at, but also with each other. Um, because as a general rule, and you would know this in your own life, if you find out that one of your friends is doing it tough, you're going to think about it and see if there's something you can do to improve their situation or at an absolute minimum to make them feel a bit better or to let them know that you're thinking of them, that they're not alone, et cetera, right? You, when you find out that someone that you care about is, is doing it tough, you try and do something to, to make that at least a little bit better. And when you hide behind glib, yeah, I'm fine, I'm good, thanks, blah, 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 all these shallow conversations, exactly like what you're talking about, people wanted to go along and pretend like everything's normal, you might be okay but the person next to you might not be, and you won't know because you never actually had a real conversation with them. And therefore, when they needed to be asking for help but didn't have the courage to do it, you weren't having the conversation that could have uncovered the fact that they're not okay. And maybe you could have done something. And then you're left in a situation where sadly, a lot of Australians are right now, where they've lost friends in the last two years to suicide. And they're sitting there going, he never even said anything to me. He, was fine. he said he was fine. We had a conversation. He said he was fine. Well, yeah, but you didn't have a real conversation. You didn't actually talk because you just did the glib little thing of, yeah, yeah, I'm great. How are you? Of course, they're going to hide behind the same, right? So I, I, this, is, this is for me, you know, I'm, I'm done. This is a little bit of a, you know, same as what I said before, the flag in the, in the, in the ground. I'm, I'm I'm staking my, my claim and, and my territory and saying it's okay to not be okay. Number one, it's not just a slogan. That's, that's a real thing. It's okay to not be okay. It's okay to be honest about not being okay. And we, you actually need to tell people how you really feel 
even if you're not bad, it gives them permission to tell you how they really feel. And that's where you have the opportunity to potentially change somebody's life. Yes, and the format of social media was what the powers that be expected us to use. And who's going to go off about feeling suicidal or depressed? That's right. I didn't want to That's talk right. to anyone. I still don't. This is a thing is yeah. I'm, I'm going to go to my grave angry about this. I want there yeah. to be investigations. I've done work. Look, I'm an anthropologist. I've spent a lot of my life doing work on Argentina's disappeared. And that has come to mind. They had what is called a Comisión Nacional sobre la Desaparición de Personas, CONADEP, which was basically an investigation. We saw this after 9-11 into what happened, why did this happen, how did this happen? And they published a document called Nunca Mas, Never Again. And I want us yeah. to do Nunca Mas in our countries. I think all of us have to demand these governments come clean. And I'm talking about ministers' bank accounts, their investments. I want to know if any minister had investments in this big pharma nightmare because they need to go. And like you, I think people need to go to prison. I think that this has been, you, you sounded like me earlier when you said this is the greatest human rights violation in terms of numbers. And I also did that. I am not comparing this to the Holocaust or other. You have to always do that. Yeah. Right. But in sheer numbers, in what world yeah. has the entire population of the planet? Well, not the entire, because Mexico did not do this. And let's you know remember yeah. that there were countries with leaders sane enough to realize that if they did this, people would die. So why was it that in a lot of Western countries, in most Western countries, you had Trudeau locking down people thinking we good? Because the end result of this is that there are higher than ever suicide rates. There are higher than ever levels of undiagnosed diseases. People are dying. We have that 16% of excess deaths mm -hmm. in recent weeks mm -hmm. that nobody is able to mm -hmm. explain. 20% in Australia. Yeah, oh my God. So when this is explainable, how many of those digging in their heels will dig in even more? How many will have the chutzpah to say, Oh, Jesus, I got this completely wrong. Look, I, I've been saying for a while now, and it used to be a joke, but I'm getting a bit more serious about it now. That the problem with politics is that no politician has been tarred and feathered and run out of town in far too long. You know, there used to be consequences, and I'm not, I'm not calling for vigilante, I'm not calling for, for any of that sort of nonsense. But if you were a politician, made terrible decisions, 200 years ago, uh, you got run out of town. You got told, you know what, not only are we not letting you be our mayor anymore, but we're actually really do feel like we have to get angry to that point. We have to get to the point where the ones that we can put in prison, we put in prison. And the ones that we can't, we say leave and never come back. Because if you come back and someone recognizes you, there's no guarantee for your safety. Um, and because the, the crime, the crimes that have been committed are capital offences, in, in my view. It's just, and, and I, I'm not someone who's ordinarily in favour of, of, uh, of the death penalty, but the crimes that have been committed here are of the weightiest nature, more widespread as human rights violations than we've ever seen before. And I, I just, I cannot see a way to rebuild trust without first seeing 
these individuals being held accountable at an individual level. It's not good enough for the government to pay compensation. It's not good enough for a government apology in a few years' time. No. There were people that made grave errors of judgment at best. At best, they made grave errors of judgment. Uh, some people would, be, would believe that it was malicious, but I'm going to be charitable. At best, they made horrific, grave errors of judgment at a time when we had the data that should have informed their decisions and they would have been able to make much better decisions had they actually looked at that data. No one's been wise in hindsight here. We had the data in March 2020 that could have informed much better decisions right from the get-go. They ignored that and they chose a path that has had horrific consequences and is claiming the lives of an enormous number of people, has taken us 50 years backwards in terms of human rights. And those individuals need to be held accountable to the to the highest possible standard of law i completely agree and i fear that we're going to be light years away from this tofer because people tend to see crime in terms of what they see on film these burglars masked coming into your home rapists in parks but we know that most rapists aren't it's not even in parks most rape occurs amongst people that these women and children know. So oh, that's, right. th that's sort of the face of what's going on here, where mm -hmm. people are unable to recognize the grave human rights violations done to all of us because it was done from a guy wearing a tie on the TV, Dr. Correct. Fauci, Correct. information scientist, threat, grave danger, blah, blah, blah. And what's what we aren't going to be able to resolve is the fact that as you pointed out you you know this is on the level of a dictatorship where human lives have been taken that 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 will still continue to be taken because the fallout from this lockdown will have years in the making of effects and people will refuse because people are obedient to power there are people who naturally will say but that's the WHO. You can't trust them. Mm, oh, you're right. a conspiracy that's theorist. Right. But wait a that's, second. That's right. We've given a backdoor entry in, into our governments by these non-elected bodies. And I think it bears stating that none of these organizations, to include the UN, to include Dr. Fauci, should have any weight on government decision to forego their own political mandates to protect people to speak the truth because what really i was being facetious but yes where in the human history uh, in the last hundred years has any country said that what china's doing should be emulated but that's what italy did that's right. and following on the steps that's of right. italy dozens of other countries yeah and, and you know you, you made the point there that people just don't recognize it for what it is i i put up a meme um, oh, when would this be? It'd be about a year ago uh, that caused more outrage than any other post that I've ever put online. Uh, and I, I spoke to people who had been victims of abuse before I posted it because it was actually inspired by some of the stories that they were sending to me. I, you know, I'm sure you're the same. You've, you've got some profile and I'm sure you must get heartbreaking emails and messages and things from time to time. And in, in um, mid-2021, when things were really grim, we were back deep into lockdowns and we were being smashed by the cops at protests and so forth. I was just being sent some really heartbreaking stuff. And um, inspired by a number of stories, I made a meme. And the meme was a picture of um, Harvey Weinstein, the, um, 
the um, Hollywood producer who was using his position to basically force Hollywood actresses to have sex with him. Uh, otherwise, they wouldn't get a role. And I had a picture of, um, of Harvey Weinstein standing next to a young actress. And I put the caption, no jab, uh, sorry, I put the caption, the original no jab, no job, right? Uh, and, and naturally, of course, just explosive reaction from, from people. And what was really amazing was I had people commenting saying, thank you for saying this. I'm an abuse survivor and I've been feeling like this, but I've been ashamed that I was feeling like this. I've been feeling like I'm not allowed to feel like this. And you've, you've validated me. And then the very next comment would be someone, how dare you make light of you know, sexual abuse and you should be ashamed of yourself. I mean, this isn't how anyone feels, but I'm like literally in the comment above your comment is a woman saying, thank you. This is how it is for me. And, and yet they just felt so self-righteous in their own perspective that they couldn't accept that maybe there was, there was another perspective there. And people, you're absolutely right. They can't see the parallel. You compare um, Dr. Fauci's no jab, no job with Harvey Weinstein's no jab, no job. Well, you know, absolute outrage. It's not comparable. They're two completely different things. Well, they are two completely different things. You're dead right. But the survivors of sexual abuse are reaching out to me and saying, this is how I feel. So maybe there is more of a relationship there than what some of us are willing to admit. And just because it doesn't look the same doesn't mean that it doesn't actually have some really heartbreaking similarities and, and brings up some really, really heartbreaking feelings and emotions and memories for people that are survivors of sexual abuse. Absolutely. And the fact is, is that I'm getting emails from people just yesterday in exchange from a professor in New York City who stands to lose his job because he will not get this vaccine, this quote unquote vaccine. We've really got to ask ourselves, and this has been the case since the vaccine was introduced, because I'm sure you noticed the shift in the US when Trump was developing the vaccine. Democrats were like, I'm never getting that. The Democrats are the biggest pimps of this vaccine. They've been pushing it. <laughs> and let me tell you that now, we have a two-tier society in New York. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And in many other places. It's the same in Australia and Italy and so many places. I mean, you know, what they're, what they're doing over here is they've been winding back the government mandates, but encouraging businesses to come up with their own mandates. And they've rewritten human, um, human resources and employment legislation to allow businesses to discriminate on the basis of VAC status. Um, so they're essentially, they're now outsourcing their human rights abuses. They're saying, well, we're not abusing human rights anymore, but we'll give permission to all the employers to do it for us. Yes. And this is a very well-known tactic, in fact, where this is another goalpost shifter. They can then make culpable the business. If there is a legal challenge, it will be the business facing that lawsuit. There needs to be investigations as to how the state can get away with this. Because you have loads of healthcare workers who are saying no to this. Now, wait a sec. Let me just go back to Sunday morning when in 2020, February, we were told to listen to the healthcare workers. They were the ones on the TV saying, we're inundated with bodies. But now we suddenly have to say, shut the fuck up to them. Your voice doesn't matter. So we know that they were propaganda tools and they weren't willing propaganda tools because many of these people saying our hospitals are overwhelmed. They were saying the truth. They were saying the truth that they saw and experienced. But now, their truth and experience no longer matters. And this is a truly sore day for democracy because I don't think we can speak about having it anymore. 
No, we, we can't. And one of the people in Battleground Melbourne um, is, a, is an MP, uh, Catherine is her name, and, and she talked about the fact that in the Australian National Anthem, we have the line, Australians all let us rejoice, for we are one and free. And we're not one anymore. We are very much divided. We do have official apartheid in this country uh, where, where it is perfectly legal now to discriminate against someone based on their medical choices and their medical status. And we are not free. We know that now. Whatever freedoms we think we have, they're not freedoms, they're permissions. We have permissions from the government that allow us to behave as though we're free until the government changes its mind and decides that it's, it's no longer time for us to behave like we're free. That's not freedom. That's permission. So even the words of our national anthem need to be changed now to reflect this reality. We still have elections, but we're not a democratic country in the sense of a government that serves the people, a government of the people, by the people, for the people. That, that idea is dead. And the science has been just a twist on the female penis all through and through. My children yeah. go to a school where there are two entrances now. And all the schools in Italy that have more than one door have different entrances. You're going to laugh at this. They're like not even 20 meters apart. And they go in like year one, three and five. And then the other one is years two and four. And you go in separately to go into the same corridor. They eat at the same time in the same. It's bullshit. And I pointed this out. I said, can we do away with all of this? Because I feel like I'm being brainwashed every time I bring my children here. I would show up at the last minute because there were too many parents, no parking spaces. So I'd show up right before they closed the gates and I'd send both my kids in the same gate. Well, you can't do that. Your son has to go over there. I'm like, why? I want a scientific reason as to why 20 paces over there. Somehow I'm doing, this is bullshit. There is nothing being done here. It's like these masks. <laughs> nothing is true about any of this. And you are simply offering me a host and telling me if I take this yeah. host, will be saved after death. Yeah, it's, it's theatre. It's theatre is what it is, a pageantry. And, uh, and, you know, did you notice all the way through, and this comes back to what I was talking about with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, people weren't satisfied with just being obedient. They had to be showy about their obedience. Yeah. Wasn't enough to wear a mask when you went to the supermarket. You had to take a selfie and put it online. Wasn't yeah. enough to get the jab. You had to take a selfie and put it online. And put a you, meme. Wasn't I got to, the jab. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, put a little little uh, little circular thing around your profile picture. It wasn't enough to be obedient. They had to be seen to be obedient. There, there is this pageantry, this theater that comes with it. And, and again, this only reinforces my view that this is a religious experience for, for many, many people. This is a, a true faith experience where they have this new version of sin and salvation that's been offered to them by, by their government. And they have just gone for it, absolutely boots and all. And some of them will never let it go. Others, it will come crashing down around them. And when it does, their outrage is going to be a sight to see. Yes, and, and we're seeing the kind of censorship happening on social media that's rewarding those with the profile pics of them getting the jab, of them saying, save our NHS. Memes were part of it. And yesterday, I had a post. This is phenomenal. I shared someone's post on Facebook about our American politician, uh, Alessandra Ocasio-Cortez, who was arrested and it was part of uh, what they said was her political theater of being arrested. And it's very clear from the photos that this is what's going on. And so I shared it. Now, Facebook came 
and censored my sharing. And it's really amazing to see the order of what happened. In fact, I wrote, a, I redid John Mellencamp's Jack and Diane to this, a little ditty about Twitter and Facebook. I did a whole song here, <laughs> but I did it because what happened is Facebook wrote me this saying, we added a notice to your post, false information in the post. And it said, fact check. No, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez did not fake her recent arrest. Now that's not what the person who posted said. They didn't say she faked it. Correct. Yeah, they do this all the time. She talked about political theater. Those are two different things. Fake is meaning mm -hmm. that it mm -hmm. never happened and that she faked it by making, let's say, photos of another event, like the what people say was the faked lunar landing. No, people know that she was at a scene, that she was, in fact, arrested. But they were saying that she made theater of it. Yeah. Now, that difference is something that NATO's arm of the Atlantic Council, which is Facebook's or Meta, now that they've been rebranded, it's Meta's official fact checker. The Atlantic Council is now running about unable to tell the difference between faking something and making theater. And it's a distinction that is most important around this COVID issue because we cannot simply continue to pretend that this is something that's going to disappear because we're saying that COVID never existed. No, we're not denying that it's a real virus. We're not denying, this is, this is the difference that's happening with the censors. We're being told that we're right-wing conspiracy nuts who think that COVID was made up. This is insanity. What you described there, it's happening quite a lot where they, they deliberately miss what the what the post is actually about in order to be able to say that it's false uh, i've ha i've seen this happen on on my posts multiple multiple times where they they just they choose to misconstrue what you've said so that they can slap a warning on it or so that they can you know take you offline for 30 days um you know when, when you see who is actually um you know making these decisions it's interesting you, you, what you mentioned about the atlantic council i wasn't aware of that until this interview um but there are there are other groups that are known to participate in fact checking for meta and these these are not unbiased groups these are not you know groups with high standards of journalistic integrity etc they often have a very clear perspective on social issues at the very least and and they are using this so-called fact checking they're literally being paid to be fact checkers and they're taking that money and using that opportunity to put forward their view of the world. And uh, I, again, I mean, people lose faith in journalistic institutions when they start being lied to. And I think people are increasingly losing faith in all these fact checks, et cetera. And uh, you know, I think that the demise of the fact check can't come soon enough. I'll make this my final note, but when you think about the impact psychologically that it's had on people like you and I, at least we've got some decades behind us. We've got some life experience behind us. We, we, we have a perspective that, for example, a 16-year-old does not. Take a 16-year-old, lock them down for two years, give them all the fear porn and everything that's gone on. What's the long-term psychological effect of that on that child as they enter adulthood after you know, two years of this psychological warfare? We don't know. We don't know what the impact of that is. But I, I honestly think that what's happened is, is not only have we failed to protect older people because these vaccines are not actually effective, um, but also we've sacrificed our younger people in ways that we do not yet understand under the guise of protecting older people and failing to do so. But with that excuse, we've sacrificed them. And the, the effects of what we've done are going to be playing out literally till after I'm dead. Because these young people 
will be carrying the effects of how they entered adulthood and the circumstances under which they entered adulthood uh, till long after I'm dead. Thank you.